The reading tonight is taken from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. It's James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that is the Lord, that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Well, last Sunday evening, if you were here, we um, uh, witnessed uh, Jackie's baptism, which was a great occasion. Uh, we heard her testimony of how she... She came to faith. She talked about the, um, the intellectual journey, um, how she enjoyed discussing religious concepts. But what convinced her in the end of the truth of the gospel was, was the kindness shown to her in her time of need. And also witnessing the kindness shown by other Christians to those in need. She saw, she saw faith in action, faith being lived out in love for others. Human beings are a wonderfully complex collection of, um, of body, soul, mind, emotions. We've heard a bit about that this evening from, from David. And that's how God made us. And the beauty of a relationship with God is that it affects every aspect of our lives. It's not just something we compartmentalize. 
something we believe in our heads, but then carry on living our lives like everybody else. It's not something where we, we seek the um, occasional emotional high and then go back to everyday life. It's not something we, we save up for when we die. My soul is saved. In the meantime, I'll get on living my life the way I'd like to. Faith in Jesus affects every part of us. That's why when we say our vision as a church is to see lives changed by Christ. It's not just that we want to see the church grow in numbers. We want to rejoice in the difference we see in people in their whole lives when they accept Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The letter of James is all about faith in action. But it's not just an encouragement to live out your faith. It also provides some very practical help and wisdom in working out how we should live the Christian life. Because often it's quite hard, isn't it, to know what would Jesus do in this situation. And so James tackles head-on some of the most challenging situations that we can find ourselves in. The way we speak to one another. The power of the tongue, both for good and for evil. Our attitude to the wealthy and the poor. How do we treat everyone equally when society treats them differently? And one of the hardest ones, which is what we're looking at this evening, this first chapter, how should Christians deal with trials and temptations when they come along? And what James says is crucial to our ability to live out our faith. It's about the word of God being planted within us. And that will come out more next week. But who do we, what do we know about James um, as we start this uh, sermon series in this letter? Well, it is generally accepted that this is James, the brother of Jesus. And the amazing thing about James is that if you had Jesus as your brother and you've grown up with him, you've seen his, his special character, his perfection, you would expect, wouldn't you, that he would have no doubts about who he was. And yet we're told in, in John's gospel that um, Jesus' own brother did not believe him. He did not believe who he said he was, which I think is quite an encouragement in some ways if you have an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving children um, and you're tempted to think... Um, I'm just not a good enough witness. Why don't they see me? Um, Why don't they listen to my teaching and follow Christ, put their trust in him? Because however privileged a situation we may have in terms of access to Jesus' teaching, access to godly examples, we all need the work of God's grace in our lives to be converted. And we do see God's grace at work in James' life. He's specifically mentioned as one of those who met Jesus after he rose from the dead. He's mentioned as being with the disciples at Pentecost, waiting for the Spirit to come. And later, we read in Acts that he became the leader of the the church in Jerusalem. And so as James begins his letter, he is able to describe himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, at some point, a transformation had happened in his life. God had had mercy on him. In this letter, James is writing to the the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, by which I think is meant writing to the Jewish Christians who have um, been scattered as a result of the persecution we read about in, in Acts. 
And it's thought to be one of the earliest letters written um, in the mid-40s AD, just a few years after Jesus' death. As we're going to see over the coming weeks, James is a pretty direct writer. He doesn't hang around. Just look at the opening. He writes, greetings. But then there's no soft um, preparing for what's going to come next. He's straight in there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. And you might expect he's going to say something now like, when you break bread together, when you sing and worship God, when you see the beauty of his creation, when you know your sins have been forgiven. But none of that. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And when he talks about trials, he's not just talking about um, if things are not going too well at work or you're feeling a little unwell or the harvest hasn't been particularly great this year. This is the early church. Christians are being persecuted for their faith. They face the possibility of imprisonment, of beatings, of, uh, of death. These are serious trials. And James says, consider it pure joy. So why? Why would he say that? Well, he carries on. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It will produce in you perseverance. Perseverance is that character quality that says, I won't give up. I will keep on going. Whatever these trials are that come my way, I will not allow them to overwhelm me. But perseverance in itself is not a goal. Perseverance is the quality that enables you to achieve the goal. There are many people who demonstrate great perseverance. A couple of guys coming up on the screen right now. One of them on the left there is a Ukrainian guy, Vasil Kovalchuk. He lost his um, right arm at the age of 11 when he was attacked by a bear in in a zoo. But he overcame that, that disability to, to win gold in the rifle competition of the Paralympics. The right-hand side is um, an Iraqi, Amar Ali, who used to, to make ceilings uh, as a carpenter until a bomb went off um, and left him without the use of his legs. But in his wheelchair, he learned how to fence, and he won Iraq's first medal in fencing. But what was the goal of that perseverance? Winning a medal, being the best in that particular event, which is a great goal in some some ways. But the trouble with a goal that depends on our strength is that it has no eternal significance. And whether that goal is, is winning a gold medal, whether that goal is becoming successful in our career and making lots of money by fighting all the way to get to the top, look what it says In verse 11, the rich will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. By way of contrast, verse 2 tells us what the goal of perseverance is for the Christian. First four, sorry. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature 
and complete, not lacking anything. God's goal for us is to become mature in our faith, to become like Jesus Christ. Let's just turn briefly to Ephesians um, chapter 4. Again, we see the goal of our faith on page 1175. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And we're told there, Christ, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the, of the fullness of Christ. God has a goal for us, and that is to make us mature in our faith. And he's called certain people apart to help us achieve that goal. And part of the, the teaching and equipping that we as pastors and teachers are meant to do is prepare people for trials, help people get through trials. It's not to try and do everything to avoid them, because if everything in life was easy for us and we didn't experience trials, we wouldn't grow in our faith. We'd become spiritually flabby and lazy. God wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to grow in our ability to persevere in trials. Why is that? Have a look at verse 12. Blessed, it says here, is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. God wants to welcome us into his presence, and much um, as it might be a great achievement to win a gold medal at the Olympics, that is nothing compared to receiving the crown of life. So we rejoice in our trials because they help us to become more mature in our faith. And as we become more mature, we lack nothing. But of course, none of us is yet mature. That's a lifelong process. So what might we be lacking at the moment? If there was one thing you could ask for, what would it be? Well, that was the question that was put to King Solomon in the Old Testament. Uh, some, of you may, some of you may know. And um, you may remember his reply. This is what he says. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. He chose wisdom. And we're told that God was very pleased that he had chosen this. Which brings us on to our next point, that God will give you the wisdom to rejoice in your trials if you ask him to. As we said, James is pretty direct as a writer. He doesn't hang around to to ask uh, the people he's writing to um, what they would like or what they're lacking. He just says... In verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. He's actually quite smart, isn't he, as well as being direct, because after all, who's going to say, actually, I think I've probably got enough wisdom, thanks very much. Um, We all need wisdom. 
But what does he mean by wisdom here? If you look at the the Oxford English uh, Dictionary definition, it says to be wise is to show experience, knowledge, and good judgment. But that begs the question, well, what sort of experience, knowledge, and good judgment? According to whom? And this is where we come back to the issue of what is your goal in life? Because the goal of gaining human wisdom and knowledge, in many ways, is to show how clever you are. Scientific discovery is often not about, look at this amazing thing that we have discovered, but look at us who've discovered it. And so we name the discovery after the person we have, the Higgs boson, the Kelvin scale, etc., etc. But actually, shouldn't what they be about is look at God who designed this amazing thing. Look at God. This is the way the world works that he created. Isn't he amazing? If our goal is to become more like Christ, then the sort of wisdom that we will want is Christ-like wisdom. It is in the words of the letter to the Philippians to have the mind of Christ, to think and behave like he does, to have a discerning heart, to distinguish between God's idea of right and wrong. And ultimately to respond in the same way as he did to trials. We can't display the same patience, the same grace and kindness and willingness to forgive that Christ showed if we're not ourselves subject to mistreatment, to to slander, to attacks. And so to ask for wisdom is to be willing to embrace the trials through which we will learn much wisdom. God wants to give us wisdom. He's a generous God. But to ask for it comes at a cost, at a cost to our comfort, at a cost to our security. To ask for wisdom is to be willing to share the sufferings of Christ. It's to say the same thing that Paul said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It's a tough thing to ask for, but actually it's the best thing to ask for because it's the only way we will become like Christ. The only way our faith will grow stronger, the only way we will come closer to God. So if you're struggling with a willingness to to ask for this sort of wisdom, and think of the example of Christ on the cross. Yes, it was incredibly painful what he went through. But for him, the rewards outweighed the pain. In Hebrews, we read, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Alternatively, read a book by someone who has been persecuted for their faith, and just see how beautiful their character is. And you want to be like that by God's grace. One example is a book um, which uh, the, uh, the women in the reading group, um, the, the book club, have been reading fairly recently, The Insanity of God. Um, it's by a couple who worked in Somalia for, for many years, at the end of which they were totally broken. They just saw complete evil. Um, they just couldn't see God at work and were totally in despair. 
And it prompted them to go and visit um, many Christians in different parts of the world where they were being persecuted for their faith. And what they saw was, was Christ. They saw in the people who were willing to undergo persecution, they saw the resurrected Christ. I'm going to show at the end of um, the sermon a video about that uh, to finish with, um, but a great example. The wisdom they saw in these Christians as they went to visit them was the wisdom described a couple of chapters later in James 3.17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. But coming back to chapter 1, if we're to ask for wisdom, then what is this doubt that James talks about in verse 6? Because if, when we read it first, it seems to be harsh, doesn't it? Look at verse 6. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Because let's face it, we all have doubts from time to time, don't we? Is that wrong? Well, I think the key to understanding is this is the fact that such a person is described as double-minded. And that's the same description James uses in chapter 4, verse 7. Have a look over the page when he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The doubt and the double-mindedness is about not being willing to submit oneself fully to the Lord. If you're trying to keep one foot in one camp and another foot in in another, you'll be like a wave that is blown and tossed by the wind. And that is not a good place to be. And I know from my own experience, when I was in my early 20s, I knew deep down that God was real, but I wasn't willing to relinquish control over my life. So I had a foot in both camps, a foot in the camp of the world and a foot in Jesus' camp. And that is a place where you cannot stand, you cannot last. It's being double-minded. It's never going to work. Well, the thing with trials is that they do determine whether something is genuine or not. I didn't bring a, a lighter in this evening, so I probably uh, breached the health and safety uh, policy of the church. But if you held a naked flame to a, a leather jacket, a genuine leather jacket, it would be a while before it actually burnt. If you held that up against a fake leather jacket, You'd soon smell it, it would start to shrivel up and burn and melt and be pretty, pretty nasty. The smell of burning plastic. What the trials of life do is test the genuineness of our faith. Whether we will continue to trust in God or whether we're just going to return our back on Him. Because there'll be many people who call themselves Christians, but when tragedy strikes, they will blame God. They will turn their back on Him and walk away. Which brings us on to the warning that James gives his readers about how not to respond to trials. And that is that God will help you resist temptation again if you ask him to. If you ask him to. 
And here James talks about, um, in verse 13 onwards, about temptations rather than trials. But the word in the Greek is actually the same word. But it's been translated differently in the two uh, contexts to make a clearer distinction between those external difficulties that happen to us, whether that's sickness or poverty or persecution, and the internal pressure, the temptation to respond in an ungodly way. In other words, to sin. And he describes here the process by which sin takes hold of us. And it is a process. It takes place a step at a time. Let's just look at these verses. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. A trial becomes a temptation, depending on how we respond to the circumstances. Every situation we encounter requires a decision, doesn't it, from us. Will I persevere? Will I remain faithful to God? Or will I listen to that that inner voice that leads me down the path of disobedience and unfaithfulness. It's what David was talking about earlier. Do I allow my, my feelings, my thoughts to dictate what I do, or do I trust in my faith in God? And the first thing that James teaches us is to, to be aware of is to blame God. To move from the belief that God is in control of everything, that he even ordains it, to saying, actually, if I find it too hard and give up, it's his fault for allowing me to go through that. Well, how does James warn us? Well, first by saying that God cannot be tempted by evil. His nature is too too holy. He would not be able to try and make us fail and cause us harm. Secondly, it says, nor does he tempt anyone. He does not want us to fail. He tests us. But he's not there waiting for us to, to trip up, enjoying seeing us fall like... Um, some reality TV program, you're just waiting for people to make a complete fool of themselves. God is not like that. When he tests us, it's because he wants us to pass the test. He wants us to inherit the blessing. And if we fail, the blame lies with us and not with God. It lies, as it says here, with our own evil desires that result from our evil nature. It's those desires for for things other than God's glory that lead us away from God and cause us to sin. And the more that sin gets a hold of us, it eventually leads to death. And eternal death, of course, is the contrast to the life that is promised there in verse 12. The life that is promised to the person person who perseveres in the face of trials. Blessed is the one who who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, as we come towards the end, our ability to rejoice in our trials, to consider them joy, ultimately depends on our view of God. He's not someone who wants to spoil our fun, to cause us pain. Nor is he some weak and powerless God who who can't actually do anything about our trials. 
He's a powerful God. He's a loving God who wants the best for us. Who wants us to persevere through our trials so that we receive the gift of life. And the more we experience the strength that he provides for us in our time of need, the more we will love him. And so James concludes with this great encouragement to his fellow believers in verse 17, where he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He gives everything that we could possibly need. And what he gives us is exactly what we do need. And he gives us that through the word of truth, which we'll look at next week. He doesn't change. He's always generous. He always knows what we need. He always wants to give it to us. And his greatest gift is to give us birth, to give us life. We were dead in our sins, but he's raised us to life and we've become the first fruits. We are especially his. And so our ability to rejoice in our trials, as it says here, depends on how much we see God as a generous father, how much we really want to grow in our faith and become like Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can we say like Paul, I want to be like Christ?